Good morning, everybody. So good to see you all here. Happy New Year. And uh, so thankful you are here, really am. Uh, my name is Dan, if I haven't met you yet, and I'm sure glad that you came this morning. I, uh, I'm just excited. Hey, New Year, and we get to start a new book of the Bible. And as Dylan said, it's called Ephesians, also known as the Letter to the Ephesians. And basically, I was thinking, you know, we, we preached through the Gospel of John, which ended with the book of Acts. Acts picked up where John ended. We preached through Acts. Paul ended up in uh, prison uh, or house arrest in Rome, and so I thought, you know what, it would be fitting to read one of the letters, at least, that, that Paul wrote while he was imprisoned in Rome. And so, um, kind of going in sequence here that God has uh, providentially provided for us, and I know this, that not all of you were here for the book of Acts. Maybe some of you are new to the Bible itself, which is great. I'm glad you are here. And so as we look at the first few verses of Ephesians this morning, we're going to also spend a little bit of time reviewing where we've been thus far. And then after the message today, since it's the first Sunday of the month, we will invite everybody who trusts in Jesus uh, to take the Lord's Supper together. And so if you have a Bible with you, uh, let's, uh, let's open up to Ephesians chapter 1. It's in the New Testament. It's going to be um, near the back of your Bible. And if you, if you can't find it, there should be a table of contents in the front of your Bible. Let me pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you, God, that uh, even though the world around us can certainly be crazy and uh, the circumstances of our life, lives do not always go as planned, you do not change. Your gospel does not change. Your word does not change. Your promises do not change. You are our rock, and this is your word. This is the God-breathed word of Scripture, which we get to read in our language, and we thank you for putting it into our language for us so that we can understand it. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us today, humble our hearts, give us focus, give us thankfulness, and help us to see how awesome you are. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, if you don't own a Bible, uh, please drop by the Information Center after the service in the lobby, and they'll be glad to give you one. So let me begin. Um, basically today, we're just going to look at the introduction to Ephesians, and that's the first two verses of Ephesians. And as I was thinking about this last night, I was like, oh, people are going to be thinking about the Seahawks game and all this stuff. L let me tell you what. I'm serious here. What you are going to read in these two verses is the best thing you are going to see today. I'm serious. It is so true. It was like, this just fed my soul this week. I was like, win or lose, Seahawks, okay, that's great, whatever. Man, this is awesome, what we're about to get into. And so um, I, I'm just thankful. Man, I, I feel so privileged and honestly humbled and unworthy to even preach this word that we get to look at today. And so let's, let's look at it here. Ephesians 1, 1 to 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing we see here is that the book of Ephesians isn't really a book at all. It's a letter. And the writer of the letter begins by identifying himself, Paul, 
an apostle of Christ Jesus. So, who was Paul, and what does it mean that he was an apostle of Christ Jesus? Paul wrote this letter around the year 62 AD while he was under house arrest in Rome um, for his faith. He was probably around 60 years old at this point. He'd been a Christian. He'd been a, a pastor. He'd been a church starter or church planter for several decades. And Paul was going strong into his 60s in passion for Jesus Christ. He, he was passionate about telling everybody Everywhere, whether he was in jail or whether he was free, he, he wanted everybody to know the good news that God saves sinners in Jesus Christ. That's what he was passionate about. And if you know Paul's life's story, you know that earlier in his life, Paul hated Jesus. Paul hated Jesus' followers. Paul had spent much of his life trying to destroy Christianity by arresting and killing Christians. And so Paul's conversion now to Christianity really was a miraculous event. And so instead of me summarizing that, let's have Paul summarize for himself this 180 turn to Jesus and how it happened. In Acts 26, we'll put this on the screen, 9 to 21, Paul is talking, uh, he's, he's in trial, on trial before King Agrippa. This is what he tells the king. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I mean, that kind of persecution sounds a lot of what we think of when we hear about Christians being persecuted in third world countries today, right? People, say, people of other faiths saying, renounce Jesus or die. That's what Paul was doing, okay? Now, he says, in this connection... I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. So Paul, who, whose Hebrew name was Saul, <clears throat> submitted to Jesus, 
trusted in Jesus, began to follow Jesus when he was confronted by the resurrected Jesus back from the dead on the road to Damascus. And from that point on, Paul devoted all of his life, his time, his energy, uh, his, all his resources into preaching the gospel that Jesus saves undeserving people. And he devoted his time to starting new churches in towns all around the Mediterranean Sea. So Paul was a Christian. He was not merely a Christian, though. He was a pastor, an elder. He was not merely a pastor, though. He was not merely a church planner. He says in Ephesians 1.1, he was an apostle of Christ Jesus. So what did he mean by that? Well, the word apostle means someone who is sent out. And this term apostle is used in different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it refers to a person sent out by their church as a messenger. Sometimes it means someone sent out from their church as a missionary with a mission to do. But here in verse 1, Paul is referring to something more specific than that. Here Paul is talking about the New Testament office or position of apostle. So the, the core leaders of the early church, of the first Christians, were the apostles. The, the apostles were made up of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, minus Judas the betrayer, plus about a half dozen other men who came to be recognized as apostles. Now, in order to have been an apostle, you had to have been with Christ during his public ministry, you had to have witnessed or seen Jesus after his resurrection. You, you had to have been empowered by Jesus' Holy Spirit to perform miracles. And you had to have been chosen by Jesus himself. Handpicked. So Paul did not technically meet all this criteria, especially the first one. He had not been with Jesus during his public ministry before Jesus was crucified. So Paul was not one of the original 12 apostles. However, Paul came to be recognized as an apostle because Jesus called him to be one. <laughs> Jesus has the trump card. He says, you're an apostle. Okay. And because the apostles were called by Jesus Christ himself to be his apostles, the apostles had unique authority to teach and to write on behalf of Jesus himself. And the book of Acts says that the early church devoted itself to their teaching, to the apostles' teaching. And that is what we do today still. Uh, on Sundays, in our midweek community groups and Bible studies, in our own personal reading, uh, Bible reading time with Jesus, we're devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching who are writing on behalf of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, all of the New Testament of Scripture was written by one of the apostles or by a close ministry partner of one of the apostles. And since everyone who met the criteria for apostleship lived in the first century and has passed away, we no longer have the office of apostle in the church today. So this is why in Ephesians 1.1, Paul refers to himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's claiming uh, uh, authority here, not in a, a, a prideful way, but in a truthful way because people are trying to figure out who do we listen to. And this is why Paul says he was an apostle 
by the will of God. So Paul did not make himself an apostle. It's important to know. Jesus made Paul an apostle. It was God's will, God's desire for Paul to be an apostle. And we'll see in the coming weeks that this phrase that Paul uses here, the will of God, appears over and over and over again. It appears four times just in the first 11 verses. And so God's will is a central theme in this letter, in Paul's letter, and it's specifically in this first chapter. And the idea put forth by this phrase, God's will, is that we did not become Christians or preachers or apostles because we first willed it for ourselves, but because God willed it first for us. And the implication then is that by that being saved through faith in Jesus Christ, becoming one of his redeemed people, covered by his blood, having a personal friendship now with God, seeking to obey Jesus with your life for his glory, is entirely due to the grace of God and not to anything you or I have done. It's entirely because of God's grace. So now when you read in Ephesians 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, it means, it should mean, listen up. <laughs> because God is about to speak through Paul the inspired, inerrant word of God because Christ Jesus has called Paul to speak and teach on his behalf to us, to his people, to the entire world. And then, Paul goes on to tell us who he's writing to. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So the original audience of the letter was to the saints or Christians in the city of Ephesus and in its surrounding villages, okay? But why is Paul writing them? What, what do we know about Paul's relationship with the Christians in Ephesus? Well, the first thing you might remember or that you, you should know is that the elders of the church as representatives of the people of the church of Ephesus loved Paul dearly. They would have been thrilled to get this letter from Paul. Because the last time they'd seen Paul, remember, was about seven years earlier when he said, you're never going to see me again. He, he said, I, he, I have to leave you now. And he uh, they walked him to his ship outside town, and they prayed with him. And it says they, they just wept together, and they kissed him, and they, they hugged him. They loved this guy. The Ephesian Christians loved Paul because he had spent and given a significant portion of his life to minister to these people. He lived for them about, well, with them for about three years. Uh, performing amazing healings among them and exorcisms as the Lord led him. And uh, he taught people about Jesus every day in the hall of Tyrannus, we read. And God made his teachings so powerful, so prolific, that it said everybody living in this city of Ephesus, including everybody in the entire surrounding province, heard the gospel of Jesus, everybody, because of Paul. That's incredible. Think about that. That's like saying everybody from Bellingham to Seattle has heard the gospel because of one person. That's amazing. Paul, 
Paul's ministry was just blessed um, according to God's plan and will uh, by the Spirit. Now, what do we know about this town specifically, Ephesus? Well, in the first century, Ephesus was, it was a large city. Its, its citizens were very interested in spiritual things, but not in a good way. They were infatuated with spiritual darkness. Uh, idol worship, worshiping statues, worshiping false gods, very sexually immoral, uh, in, in, uh, very entrenched in magic, in witchcraft, and other demonic activities. Um, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was in Ephesus. It was the, the temple of Artemis. It was 600 years old. Artemis was the, the Greek goddess of fertility. And people traveled from all over the world to, to worship Artemis at this temple in Ephesus. And because of that, tourism in Ephesus was a major component of their economy. And so when, when masses of idol worshipers and magicians uh, heard the gospel of Jesus through Paul's lips, and then they trusted in Jesus for salvation and began to follow Jesus, they stopped worshiping Artemis. And as a result, it hurt the Ephesian economy so much because they stopped buying these shrines to worship Artemis. And, and so we read in Acts 19 about how the craftsmen in Ephesus, as a result, started this huge riot against the Christians. And the city officials were fortunately able to squelch this huge riot of thousands and thousands of people, and Paul's life was spared that day. And so some of these Ephesian Christians came from a Jewish background, but a lot of them came from a non-Jewish or Gentile or pagan background. Um, Paul describes the Ephesian Christians in verse 1 here as the faithful in Christ Jesus, meaning they were full of faith in Jesus and that they were faithfully loving God and loving one another according to Jesus' instructions, according to the way he told them to. Now, that being said, the Ephesian Christians still lived in this place. They still lived in this city that was saturated with idolatry and with sexual immorality and with witchcraft and demonic practices. And so Paul is writing in here to remind them, listen, this is who you are in Christ Jesus now. You are a new creation in Jesus because of Jesus. Don't fall into the old stuff you used to, they used to, used to, used to identify you and find satisfaction and value in. And then Paul writes to him to tell him, this is how I want you to follow Jesus together now because of who Jesus has made you in God's sight. And so the first words that Paul tells the Ephesian Christians in verse two are this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a, this is a standard greeting that Paul uses in a number of his letters or something very similar to this. And we see in it, this greeting, the, the intentions of both Paul and of God to wish grace upon its listeners and to wish peace upon its listeners. So what does this tell you about Paul's leadership? Paul is, is not writing the church in order to abuse them or hurt them. He's not writing them to 
to make sure they stay under his dictatorial rule. He's, he's not writing them to make them anxious or to make them fearful. Paul wants good for the Ephesians, just as God wants good for the Ephesians, and he declares grace and peace for them in God's name. Now, as we look at this verse, one thing we see is that God our Father is not the same person as the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the upcoming verses here, Paul is also going to talk about God the Holy Spirit. So, it's helpful at this point to talk about what it means that God is a trinity. First, it means that there is only one God who exists. Okay? There's not one God per planet. There's not one God per universe. There is one God, period. And his name is the Lord. And the Lord exists eternally as three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, who we call Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And we refer to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each as a person, not because each is a human person, but because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are each personal. They are each totally God. They each manifest God's grace in special ways. And so this is why sometimes we refer to God as the Trinity or the triune God, the three-in-one God. And Scripture describes how each person of the Trinity works in unique ways to fulfill God's plans, whether that's in the story of creation or at the baptism of Jesus or here in the epistles where you're going to see Trinitarian theology all throughout it. Um, so if you're new to, to the Bible and you read in verse 2 that Paul refers both to God and then to Jesus in the same sentence, you could think that that means that Jesus is not God. But that is not what it's, it's saying here. Paul is referring to separate persons in God himself, to God our Father, and then to God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. There is only one God, and he exists eternally as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul's letter to the Ephesians um, has been divided into six short chapters. He didn't originally write it in six chapters. That's, that was added. Um, it's helpful for us. The first three chapters are, are let me be real clear. <laughs> okay, this takes me back. Okay, I got in trouble. Sorry. So I graduated from seminary. When I graduated from seminary, I had to sit down with two of the professors and talk about this, and I actually just made the same statement I did. And they said, wait, 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 what do you mean by that? Okay, nothing was added to the content of Scripture as it was written. However, Christians have added citations or bookmarks, in a sense, chapters and verses, just to denote certain parts of the Scripture that was written. So that's what I mean. After Scripture was finished being written in the first century, nothing has been added to its contents, okay? So, that being said, we, we read it in the form of six chapters. The first three chapters are mainly about the wonderful things God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And then the second three chapters are about how we should live as God's followers because of the redemption we have in Jesus Christ. So again, this goes exactly with what we talked about last week. First three chapters, gospel doctrine, mainly. Second three chapters, gospel culture. And they all go together. Um, now, since we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper this morning, I'm not going to plow further. But there's a lot to mine here still in these verses. And there are three very encouraging applications 
from these verses, which actually pave the way for what is to come. And so I want to talk about those. Okay, first, look again at who Paul addresses his letter to. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. The saints. What exactly is a saint? See, in in modern times, we often use the word saint to describe who? Like a really, really good person, right? A really noble person, a really self-sacrificial person. And so we might ask then, well, is Paul writing this letter only to the really, really good and noble Christians? No. See, that idea that a saint is an exceptionally good and noble Christian did not even become popularized until hundreds and hundreds of years after the Bible was written. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the word saint simply refers to the saved people of God. Saints are people who have been made holy in God's sight. They've been set apart and separated from something and they have then been united to something else. Saints have been separated from sin now in Christ. They've been separated from unbelief and the kingdom of darkness. And they have been now united to Jesus Christ and to his kingdom of light. So to be a saint means to be holy in God's eyes because of your union with Christ. And so being a saint is is not predicated upon the incredible things that you've accomplished for Jesus Christ. Being a saint primarily has to do with who you are in Jesus Christ because of the incredible things he's accomplished for you because he loves you. And so if you believe today that Jesus is God, that he died for sin and rose from the dead, if, if it's your desire to know God and to follow him, if you're trusting in Jesus to save you, then you are a saint in God's eyes. So the Ephesian Christians were not saints because they were first century super Christians. It's not what he's saying. Paul says the Ephesian Christians were saints because they were faithful in Christ. They were full of faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and for the salvation of their souls and for the appropriation of all of God's promises to his people. And so to be very biblical about this, You are a saint if you've been born again through faith in Jesus. And if you've been born again, it's not because you set yourself apart. It is because God set you apart for his glory. And when Paul writes to the saints in Rome and in Corinth, he says this interesting phrase. He doesn't just call them saints. He says, God called you to be saints. In other words, the only reason why they've been holy Uh, made holy in God's eyes is because God did it for them. They did not do it for themselves. And and contrary to many modern ideas of sainthood, real saints have no grounds to boast in themselves or in anything they've done. Real saints only boast in God's grace lavished upon them in Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected. So, Christian say this, don't brush off the title of saint. 
that makes little of what Jesus has accomplished for you. Instead, um, own it. Claim it. <laughs> don't, don't say, well, I'm not good enough to be called a saint. Well, nobody's questioning that, okay? <laughs> it's like, yeah, you're not. Yeah, I didn't think you were. Uh, I didn't think I was. Instead, claim the title of saint because it has nothing to do with your inherent goodness. It has everything to do with God's inherent goodness, which he has graciously imputed to you in Jesus Christ, which you receive through faith. All right. Here's a second application from these first two verses. In verse 2, Paul extends grace and peace to the Ephesian Christians. But who does he say the grace and peace are from? God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So as an apostle of Christ Jesus, Paul is writing with the filling of the Holy Spirit on behalf of God himself. He's telling Christians that God wants his grace and his peace for you. He wants that for you. God wants Christians to know that they have his grace and they have his peace already. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It is God's favor which is due to no merit of your own. And in Christ, God's entire eternal disposition towards you now, because you're in Jesus, is one of grace. In, it is not God's favor and help given to you once when you pray a prayer to save you. But it is God's entire eternal grace poured out to you every new day for the rest of your life and for the rest of your existence after this life. God's grace to you. And then along with God's grace, he extends to you his peace his holistic, everlasting peace. Peace with him, peace in your heart because of him and you belong to him, peace with others, and, and holistic well-being and satisfaction and, and harmony. This is gonna be totally realized and brought to fulfillment for you after this life when you are with Jesus. So you have foretastes of it now, which is fully yours in Christ, and it's only going to get better when you see him in the, uh, in, the, in the flesh. So verse 2, think about this. It's not this generic blessing extended to Christians from a man, which I don't know about you, but like a lot of times when you're just reading the Bible, you kind of, okay, let me skim through the intro, and then I'll get to the other stuff. Listen, this isn't just a blessing from a man to his audience. Verse 2 is a particular blood blessing extended to God's saints from himself. So be encouraged, Christian. God blesses you with his grace and his peace. In a third application from this text, <clears throat> this God who gives us this, his own grace and peace, how is he described in verse 2? He is God, our Father, and he is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's talk about each one of those and why that should be an encouragement to us. First, Paul says he's not merely writing on behalf of God the Father. 
He is. But to these people he's writing to, he's saying, this is God, our Father. Father is a familial term. It's a, it's a term of closeness, a term of love and care. Father is not the way that Jews before Jesus addressed God. So because of what Jesus accomplished in his death and resurrection, God the Father has now brought us near to him in a new loving and caring and intimate way. He has given us the right, God the Father has given us the right in Jesus Christ to address him as our Father. And, and that is a right we did not have when we were living apart from Christ. But now God is our loving Heavenly Father who eclipses with sinful or sinless per- perfection. He eclipses with his eternal love every notion of fatherhood we've ever known on planet Earth, even by the best fathers. God is our Father in Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks, and I look forward to that. So I'm not going to use up all my material right now on that. Second, Paul says that the God who gives us his grace and peace is not only God our Father, but he's also God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Insert commentary real quick here. I told Cindy, reading through the book of Ephesians is like biting, receiving a huge chunk of the richest fudge in the world. And so you have to take it a little at a time because there's a lot to meditate on and think on. And so that's why, <clears throat> I mean, you could preach a whole sermon on one, one word. I mean, Lloyd-Jones preached like eight years on this book. I mean, and so we're not, that's not the game plan here, but I'm just saying we're going to take a little at a time, Okay. <clears throat> So Paul says God who gives us his grace and peace is not only the Father, he's also the Lord, his Son, Jesus Christ. And so, (coughs) what's Paul saying here? (coughs) He's affirming the total divinity of Jesus Christ here. That Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord, the Lord, Jehovah. The word the Jews didn't even speak because it's so holy. Jesus is the God of the Jews and of the whole world. And Jesus is also the Christ, he says. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the promised one from all of the Jewish scriptures for thousands of years. He's the Lamb of God who was slain for sin in God's sight before the foundation of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one to whom the Father has given authority and responsibility to judge you. And to judge the whole world. Yeah, Jesus came as a baby. Yeah, Jesus was humble and gentle. But don't forget this. He will come back to earth in all of his heavenly glory. Much different than the first way he came. And it says in the scripture that merely seeing Jesus upon his return in glory will make many people want to drop dead in fear. So decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus appeared to the apostle John. And he gave him these words to write down for the scriptures, for us to know where's the story of God's redemptive plan for this universe heading. And this is what Jesus um, 
these are the words Jesus gave to John about this is what I'm going to look like. This is what you should expect when I return. Revelation 19, 11 to 16 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread, tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this same word of God, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, with eyes like a flame of fire, with the armies of heaven following him, with <coughs> a sharp sword coming from his mouth to strike down his enemies, is the one who greets you, saying grace to you and peace to you, child. Earlier in Revelation, he says, don't fear. He says, don't be afraid to the Christians. I'm the first and the last. I was dead, but now I'm alive again. That's incredible, you guys. The God gives this, this God, the one on the white horse, tells you, don't be afraid. Grace and peace to you. You're not going to hear anything better than that today. Okay? Then that Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords, tells you not to be afraid because you have his grace and peace and blessing, not because you're amazing, but because he is. Wow. And you don't have to wait until the last day to hear that. This is why we have God's word. Jesus offers his grace and peace and blessing today to all who trust in him in glad submission and fearful submission, knowing this is not a God I want to mess with. That's what it means to fear God. It means he is a God you don't want to mess with. He's awesome. Man, I was looking at this picture um, this week of like, I don't know if you've seen these pictures, like when they were building these skyscrapers in New York, like in the 20s. And this was before they like, they didn't even use ropes. I mean, these guys were crazy. <clears throat> Willie, you might be like that. I don't know. Willie doesn't. But they have these, Annie makes sure he wears his ropes, I'm sure. <clears throat> they have these, it's just this picture of these guys walking out. I mean, they're 100 stories up on this ladder, walking out like 50 feet from the building. I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of position where you're on the edge of a cliff or something. You can't control your legs. Your legs take over. Your, your physical instinct is, is to shake and to be scared. And that's what Jesus is like in a good way. He's the Lion of Judah. And we should be fearful because he's our creator. But what joy there is if we know we're united to him and he's for us. And so I would plead with you today that if you're not united to Jesus, don't stay an enemy. He offers you peace. 
He offers you union with himself. <laughs> he says you, you don't have to clean your, your life up. You can never clean your life up enough to be good enough for Jesus. He says, it's not about you. It's about me. Trust in what I did to save my people. Trust in my perfect life and my death for you and my resurrection and be saved. And you'll be eternally blessed and grace and peace will be yours forever. <laughs> that is great news. And we want the whole world to know that. So you are one of God's saints if you are in Christ. And God blesses you saints with his own eternal grace and peace. And God the Father is your father now. And the Lord Jesus is your savior if you trust him. Wow, praise God. And to celebrate this uh, and to help us remember what God has done for us in Christ Jesus because of his love for us, he invites us regularly to take the Lord's Supper together. So that's what we're gonna do now. And as the communion service come forward, Let's just take a few minutes to be in awe of God in silence in our own hearts. God says that if we draw near to him, he draws near to us so we can talk to God. We don't have to have eloquent words. He already knows the thoughts of our hearts and the words of our tongue before we even say them. But I would just say, man, if, if wherever you're at today, talk to God. If, you, if, you ne if you're not a Christian and you believe Ask him to save you, and he will. I'm not here to man, try to manipulate you into believing. I can't make you believe. But turn to the Lord Jesus today and be saved. If you're in a, if you're, you know, we're at the beginning of the year. Maybe last year wasn't good between you and God. I don't know. But this is a great time to talk with God and say, Lord, please forgive me for being distant from you, for treating these people, for whatever. I don't know what, what sins have hindered your fellowship with God. What a blessing. That we don't have to do this just on Communion Sunday. We can do this whenever we want to, but what better time to do it than now before we celebrate what Christ has done for us. And so let's take a few minutes and just have some silence and talk to the Lord Jesus. Thanks. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are, Father, Son, and Spirit, and thank you for who you have made us to be in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.